when you go through the Bible this way, which I think is a good way for us to do it. That's why we do it. We go through it verse by verse, and let's just hit it. You hit all aspects of it. And so what we've seen over the last several months, obviously, is we have dove deep into the story of Abraham. And really, not only in the course of biblical history and trying to understand God's word, you see the importance of Abraham. I mean, it's it's pivotal. He, he of course, is the, the, the father of the Hebrew nation, the Jews. He's the one who demonstrates faith as the one who we look to as the faith of Abraham. Um, we see his importance in the biblical narrative, but we should also see his importance in world history as well, right? I mean, Abraham is the father of basically three religions. He's the father of three religions. Abraham's the father of obviously Judaism. They claim Abraham. He's the father of Christianity because we, as we look to him as the one there where it began, and he's also claimed by Islam as the father of Islam. Abraham's importance is incredible. What we know absolutely here, though, is Abraham's story is given to us in Scripture, and it should encourage us because we have seen the ups and downs of Abraham's story. I've tried to emphasize that, to testify to even we see Abraham's importance. The biblical passage here, the main character is not Abraham, but God. That God is doing this. And even in Abraham's retelling of these things, or the retelling of these things about Abraham, what we notice is even the bad stuff is not hidden from us. He's not washed over and cleaned up, and we're given the cleaned up version of Abraham. We see even his faults. And at the end, we see still yet his perseverance in faith. And so what I'm hoping tonight is that as we end the kind of this Abraham section, we're going to look at chapters, and I'm going to go for this, so y'all hold on, and we'll be out of here quick. We're going to do chapters 23, 24, and 25 quickly. Don't, we can do it, y'all. Don't act like that's not a big deal. It's no problem. Just relax. This will move us forward six years in this study. Because what you have here is you have a pivotal piece in the narrative here. You're changing over. You're wrapping up Abraham and we're moving to Isaac, which is heading quickly, rapidly, because we'll jump Isaac pretty quickly. We'll jump into Jacob and then his sons. And so what I want to do here is end this. We saw chapter 22. It was the great test of faith where uh, Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain. And we know what happened there. God provided a sacrifice and Abraham's faith was tested and Abraham proved to be faithful. God has provided. You see there in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 22, where uh, the Lord again reiterates the promises that he has made to Abraham. He again says, "Here's remember these promises now, all of this is true, just as much as it was true whenever God made it, but Abraham's faith is also proven for it to be true. In other words, remember how the Bible does it. You want to see Abraham's faith, you prove it by his works, right? In other words, our faith will be active. It will be seen. And so while we're justified by faith alone and not by works, we faith will never be alone. It will always be accompanied by works. And I've tried to hit that theme with us 
throughout this whole time. When you believe something, you act upon it. You do something. Belief and action go together. Trust and obey work together. And so when you believe in those, that's how it happens. So when you believe in something, there's action. You see here that God made promises. Abraham believed it. It led to certain actions acting upon those promises. And God reiterates your reward is here because you trusted in the promises of God and they've come true. So he reiterates that. So if you believe something, you act upon it. And that in verse 18 of chapter 22 is the first time you see the word obeyed happens. And in your offspring shall be the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It was Abraham's obedience here. Now, in verse 20 of chapter 22, you get this phrase that, the author of Genesis, Moses, helps us here with the phrase moving the story along, basically, because he says, now after these things. And so you saw that in chapter in chapter 22, verse 1, just letting us know we're continuing. He doesn't put a time on it. He doesn't, he's not trying to give you some necessarily a period of chronology here. He's just saying this is how it happens next. After these things. It was, told, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, that's a cool name, Buzz, Buzz, his brother, Kimuel, the father of Aram, and he goes on, Kesed, Hazo, all of this you begin to name things. And these naming of things is important. First of all, we know that the naming of people, the generations, is what Genesis is all about. It's an ancient genealogy. He's telling us the story of a family. It started with Adam and Eve, and then you saw in chapter four how he listed out 10 generations, and then it stopped because Noah was pretty significant. So let's tell you the story of Noah. And then after Noah, it lists out all these generations, and then it stops because Abraham's significant, and it tells you the story of Abraham. Well, this is how people would write their family genealogies. You would go through and list out all of the list. And then when something important happens or some major character comes up in the family, you stop and you tell their story. That's what Genesis is doing. And so these genealogies is telling us something. It's telling us a few things first. Here it goes back and he's going to tell us about Abraham's brother. Abraham's brother that comes along. Uh, and in this, in telling us this, we're having this transition to a new phrase. And this Abraham's brother is going to lead to this Bethuel fathered Rebekah. So you have this. How are we shifting now? So you have a transition. Abraham, you see this blessing of his people, and we're shifting. We want to see this one because now we're getting ready to tell us about Rebekah and her family and where that comes from. So... You'll see why that maybe is important. First, then, as you move through that transition little section, he goes into chapter 23. Chapter 23 basically relates the death of Sarah, the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, and here, as we look at this, most of this chapter doesn't really talk about her death. It tells us Sarah lived 127 years the years of Sarah's life, and Sarah died, and where she died, Curieth Arba, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property 
among you for a burying place that I may bury dead on my site. So there's a couple things we want to note here. First of all, Sarah passes away 127 years, lives this fruitful life ultimately, and 127 years, and they're in the land of Canaan when it happens. Now remember, Abraham is not from the land of Canaan. He's from the Ur of the Chaldeans. He was called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And when he was called out, the Lord says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. So in chapter 12, he goes to the land and he shows him and it's the land of the Canaanites, right? It's the land of Canaan that he is there. All the Canaanites dwell there. This is He is in a foreign place. So remember, he had to find a place. He doesn't really own any property. He's been allowed to stay there. He's built some wealth. He's built some power. He's built some influence. He's been allowed to stay there as one who stays in the land. But that allowance has been, one, ultimately the blessing of God by taking care of him even in a foreign land and the favor of God by having those nations that he's living among allow him to live there. But when it comes time to bury Sarah, this important thing of burial and burial grounds or lands, now Abraham has to come with the conflict. Do I take Sarah back to my homeland, the Ur of the Chaldeans? Do I take her back there, which would have been the natural thing to do in those days? Return to the land of your fathers, right? Go there because burial grounds, you want to be able to visit that place. You want to be able to be a part of that place. Abraham is a sojourner and a foreigner in this land, but he's well respected. And so he gets up from mourning Sarah and he goes to the Hittites where he dwells, who he dwells among. When he goes to the Hittites, he says there to the king, he says, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God. Now that's important. You notice the respect that Abraham has. He's a prince of God. So even the Hittites recognize who he is. He's amongst the people who are believing in foreign deities. He's living in a place that do not follow the Lord Abraham follows, but they recognize Abraham's goodness, right? They recognize his faithfulness to his God, and they recognize not only that, his importance. Abraham's reputation amongst these people who do not believe in God or do not follow his God, his reputation is still stellar. So in this, we can learn even from Abraham, right? Really, in this chapter, you're going to see how we would hope to be uh, to be looked at among the people that we live amongst. And Abraham sees this. I mean, Abraham comes, they recognize who he is, they recognize his reputation, and Abraham recognizes that he has no claim here, so he acts with humility. He acts with humility. And so he comes to the Hittites, he asks them for the land, and he said, they look at him, they recognize who he is. He has a stellar reputation among him of believing in his God and following him. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold you, his tomb, to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rises up. So Abraham's got favor amongst the people he lives, uh, lives with. 
He rises up. Then they say, you can have the best of, I'm not going to stop you. You want to bury her anywhere and do it. Abraham rises up and, and uh, rose and bowed down before the Hittites, giving them respect, showing humility before them, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. I'm, I'm made up how you pronounce that, but it's okay. Y'all don't know either. And so he says here, this is what I want. If I can have anywhere, I want that place. I want this place. This is the place I want. So Abraham chooses. You see Abraham's respect among them, the humility he comes with, and what they offer up. So Abraham says, this is what I want, which he owns. It is the end of his field for this full price. Let it give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. Abraham again, while he thanks them for their offer to be buried anywhere, Abraham wants to own it, right? He doesn't want to place his wife in a land he doesn't own and he doesn't have access to. He wants to own it. That's important for Abraham. So as he does this then, Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites. He's there. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of the city. And all who went in the gate of the city. No, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, again, you're talking about a people who own the land and a foreigner who lives amongst them, yet they consider this foreigner a prince of God, a faithful one. They've seen his reputation. They've seen his standing, and they're willing to give him land. I don't care what generation you're in. Go ask somebody to give you their best piece of land and see what happens. You know what I'm saying? This is a testimony, but it's also a testimony for us of God's blessing. God had promised to be with Abraham, didn't he? God had promised to be with him in every way. And Abraham's life, even when Abraham makes dumb mistakes, it doesn't change God's keeping of his promise. And God keeps his promise in everything. So Abraham's being blessed even now by God because he's a prince of God. He's one that's walked faithfully. So even the people of the land recognize this, even everybody, and they're giving him the choices that they have. And they're saying to him, I'll give you that piece of property. I'll give you the cave. But notice what Abraham does. Abraham then bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephraim, in the hearing of the people of the land. So this is the leadership, the ones that make the decisions, right? He says, if you will hear me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Y'all know how this negotiation goes. Anytime you go out to eat with somebody, this is what happens when you get the bill. You, uh, I, I got it. No, 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 I got it. You got it. You know what I'm saying? Who's going to give up first? Y'all know what I mean? When I eat with my parents, I give up rather quickly. You know, it's part of the way God designed it. They had me. I don't care how old I am or how much money I make. It's their responsibility to feed me. And so you, you, but you have to, you know, as you get older, you have to throw in that one time. No, I got it, dad. No, son, I got it. Okay. So you have to do it that way. That's the way it works. And so here, ultimately, you see how this negotiation will give you, you want my, my piece of property. Ephraim says, I respect you. Faith, I'll give it to you. Abraham says, no, 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 no. I, I can't, you can't give it to me. I want to buy it, right? 
Give me the field. I want to buy it. And he said, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So we only talking about 400 shekels here. I mean, we're both wealthy. By the way, 400 shekels is an expensive amount at this time. This is a lot of money. And so you're talking about people who are the Hittite leaders and Abraham is in that same category, right? As far as wealth, again, showing the blessing of God over Abraham who told him to leave everything you have, leave your land, leave your people, leave it all and go to the place where I will show you. So from the day he left it all to the day he stands before the Hittites, it is God who has built him up and taken care of him. Does that make sense to everybody? He can't blame this on generational wealth. He can't blame this on what's been passed down to them. He's received no inheritance from his family. He's received nothing from there. This is God's blessing on Abraham's life. And so here he stands. And the man, Ephraim, I don't know what his plan was, but he's like, y'all, come on, Abraham. This is 400 shekels, which is a lot of money. What's that between me and you? It's nothing. But he named his price, didn't he? Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field in Ephraim in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in the gate of the city. What happened was Abraham match the price that Ephraim had said. He gave him the 400. He purchased the land. He put money into this. Now this is important. Here they offer him the choicest of pieces and they say, you can have it, but Abraham refuses just to take it. He wants to pay for it and pay for it what they named the price for. And why is this? Because Abraham is making an investment. And I want you to, to, to catch this because the promises of God in the Old Testament, we're clearly tied to the land, right? You can see what happens when people leave the land. Think of the book of Ruth. Even in the book of Ruth, you know, there's a famine in Bethlehem. There's no bread in the house of bread and there's nothing there for them. So Elimelech makes a decision and he leaves the place with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Chilion and Melion, and they take off and they go to Moab, right? What happens when they get to Moab? Nothing good. Why is it? Because God had promised that he would bless his people in the land that he's provided for them. Abraham's life has become a testimony for this. Abraham's life has become a testimony that God's going to bless you if you do what I say and you are located where I tell you to be located. God says, I'm going to take care of you. And Abraham has seen this. And so what Abraham's doing here is an act of faith, ultimately. He's decided, I'm not going back to the land of my forefathers to bury my wife. This is my land. I believe the promises of God. I believe that this is the place he has given to my people. And I want my wife buried with my people in the future. I want her here. Because he believed what God said about this place was his. He believed, even though he did not come to fruition and see it, because though God said, I'm going to give you all of this land, God also tells him it will be given to your what? Ancestors after you. So he doesn't own any of it, but he's making an investment in the promises of God here, like a down payment, if you will, into the future glory, right? This is the place. I believe the promises and I'm going to invest myself in the promises of God. 
Abraham puts his money into the things he knows for sure. Whatever that may be, he says, I know God is true. I'm going to invest myself into the glory that's coming to this place and these people. He hadn't seen it yet. He doesn't own it, nothing else. But he's saying, I want this. I'm investing in this. Here, as was said, this is how Abraham invests in what I call that future glory, the commitment to the future glory. This has so, I think, so many ramifications for us, right? What are we investing our life in? Oftentimes, we can't necessarily see what God's doing even here and now, but we know what the promises of God are. We know what the end is, right? You know, and, and, and we understand that. So we begin, as I think the, the old leadership phrase says, we begin with the end in mind. And what we want to be investing our life in are not things that are temporary, here today, gone today, as Peter says, or as James says. Like a vapor, these things come up. We're not investing in what's temporary. We're investing in what's eternal, which is why one of my favorite phrases is, let's be doing today what's going to matter 10,000 years from now. Let's invest our life into what will matter. And Abraham says, I'll pay you 400 shekels. I'm buying this land because I know God's going to give us this land. I know that his people will dwell here. And I know that I want to be buried here. I don't need to go back there. Here's where God promises lies. And so for us, it's the same way. How do we invest our life? Paul tells us in, in, in this, in, in his in his letters in Philippians, Paul points us to what we should be living for, right? The advancement of the gospel, whether I live or die. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever it is, I'm investing my life in the advancement of the gospel because that's what matters. That's what matters. Live or die, I'm putting it on this. And what God's called us to do is to look to that future glory that awaits us. We lay up our treasures where? In heaven. And that's what Abraham's really doing here. He's trusting in the promises of God and he's saying, I'm laying my treasures up here in this place. So for us, we lay up our treasures in heaven. And, and not only that, what we do as Christians, we don't look to a land that we're tied to anymore because the promises of God are yes and amen in who? Christ. We, are, we find God not in a place, but in a person. And so that's why the New Testament is very clear that when you become saved, you are no longer located outside of the promises of God, but in the promises of God, and you are one with Christ. Really, the definition of salvation in the New Testament is to be united with Jesus, united with him. You're located in him. And when you're located in him, you invest in the glory that's coming that will be his glory where every knee will bow and tongue confess, right? You invest in the glory that's coming when he's on the throne. So now all your decisions in this life is to invest in the things that will matter in the life to come. Lay up your treasures there, not here. And Abraham lays us out. But here's even something I think better for us. Before we think, wow, that's a lot to ask, just consider what Ephesians 1 says for us. Because Abraham is kind of, if you think about this, Abraham is kind of putting his down payment on this property. He's putting his down payment on the promises of God. He's saying, I'm going to give you this knowing that the rest is coming to me, right? He's putting that down payment. But 
God has flipped this on us because before he even asks for us to invest in the future glory that's coming for us, he invests in us. Because what does Ephesians 1 tell us? That God gives us the spirit to dwell in us as a what? Y'all know that word, that banking term he uses? As an earnest. As an earnest for us. So that investment, the down payment for us, before God ever calls on us to invest in the future, he invests his spirit within us as a down payment telling you that I'm going to bring you to myself one day and what he begins, he will complete, right? And so God has invested in me and you through giving us his spirit as an earnest payment to say, you will be mine and you will be mine forever. And I'm investing in you. So now, now you invest in me. You invest in all of these things. And I'm not just talking about money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every single decision you make has eternity in mind. I'm talking about how you structure your life has eternity in mind. How you raise up your kids has eternity in mind. How you pay for your kids' meals at restaurants has, I just added that in there in case dad was listening. All of these things have eternity in mind, right? It's not something small here. When the Lord says we make every decision, we, we lay up every treasure, we seek first the kingdom of God and everything else comes after that. God is asking us to say, I've made an investment in you. I sent my son. He has died in your place. Purchase you. I've sent my spirit to dwell inside of you. I will bring you to myself and I will stow upon you all the blessings of glory. Everything you have is because God has, I have given it to you, the Lord says. Now, all I'm asking you to do is return those things for his name, for my name. That's what the Lord's asking us. Abraham becomes a testimony of this. God made a promise, this is going to be your land. And Abraham says to Ephraim, the Hittites, I'm putting a down payment on this. 400 shekels means nothing to me compared to the future glory of God that I'm investing in. I'm putting a down payment here. And so here in this little chapter, as he ends this stuff, Abraham brings it on and does it. I thought I'd get through three. I'm going to. Let's get going. Chapter 24. You have eight, Sarah passes away. And now Abraham must do the next thing to kind of end this thing well. Abraham must find a faithful wife for Isaac to continue on the seed, if you will, to keep that promise. Now it's important to see chapter 24. Now Abraham was old. <laughs> he's been old. I don't know why he's just added that. Well advanced in years. So he uses both in case either one offends y'all, old or well advanced. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that I will take my wife, that, that I will, you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Here, this hand under the thigh is an ancient ritual that he does of just swearing and making a promise. I want you to make me a promise. Abraham looks to his most trusted servant, the one who takes care of everything, all of his stuff. And he says, we've got to find a wife for Isaac. Here's my key to this. She cannot be a Canaanite. It has to be someone else other than the Canaanites. 
The Canaanites here aren't serving the God of Israel. In fact, the Canaanites aren't doing it. He says it's got to be one from my people, basically. This goes back of how the Bible puts together these little transitions and tells us, even in this, we see how uh, in this passage, even in this, we see how Rebecca is mentioned here in chapter 22, verse 20 to the end of the chapter 23. We see how Rebecca is mentioned. We're coming up. So he's saying... Abraham is telling us that there's a people of Abraham's family that's not here with him that's there. So now Abraham says, I need you, your most trusted servant, I need you to go there and find a wife. Don't find one from the Canaanites. You see this, by the way, Ishmael finds an Egyptian wife. You see, uh, not only that, Esau later is going to find a wife with the Hittites. They go to Canaanite women. These And the scriptures are simply saying, Basically, don't be unequally yoked, if you will. We want someone who's serving our God to be faithful to you. So he says this is the, the key for him. So, by the way, chapter 24 is a long chapter. 67 verses, I believe. I'm looking to make sure. 67 verses. It's the longest or one of the longest single narrative episodes in Genesis of all of them. I mean, you're talking about Noah. You're talking about Abraham. You're talking about um, Isaac, you're talking about Jacob and Joseph. You know, this chapter, just a single story. This is the longest chapter in single narrative. Chose the importance of this passage for this. Abraham wants to settle this before he dies. He wants to make sure that his son will have a wife who is faithful to him and to the promises as well, not from the Canaanites. So he makes him swear, swear by God and everything else that he will not get this wife from them. So he wants them to come back, by the way, to the land where Abraham dwells. You see that in verses 7 and 8. They don't need to come back here to this land. Again, showing the tie to the land. God will guide him in every way. Look, as Abraham sends it off, he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, in verse 7, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I'll give this land, he will send his angel before you. Abraham's telling his servant, you must trust the Lord. He has guided me here. He will guide you. He's giving him his direction as he goes out to find this wife. You must trust the Lord. The Lord will be your guide. And he sends him, really starting in verse 10, on a mission to find a wife for Isaac. Down in verse 15, as he heads back to the land, you see all of these characters that they mentioned even before. He went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, to the people. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. It's verse 13. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Now, I love this guy. He's going out and he's saying, all right, I'm going to go to where the ladies are at. You know what I'm saying? And the ladies are going to come to the well in the later part of the day. And he's built in a test. I'm going to ask one of them if I can have some water. And if they look at me and say no, they're out. You can just mark them out. We can tell that that's not going to be fun to live with. So, and he adds something else to the test. He says, the one who gives me drink and... To my camels. It's interesting. So he comes down. 
And uh, he prays, by the way, he prays to God. Lord, he calls on the Lord. You see that dependence on the Lord. In verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, we've already been, in, just notice how the scriptures work. We've already been introduced back here before this to her. And we see who that connection is. Before, going to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive. That helps. Very attractive in appearance. A maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled up her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her, and he said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Now this is, he's laying all these cards. He knows what's going on. He's trying to find this one who's going to give him to drink and it's the camel thing. We'll see how that works. He goes up and she says, uh, quickly, she let down her jar upon the hand and gave him a drink. So far, so good, right? Does that. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. Boom. Y'all see how that works? Got it. Draw water from your camels also. My page fell out. Let me make sure I'm not telling y'all something wrong. That they had, until they had finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Either way, the basics here are the principles God had sent, I mean, Abraham had sent his servant out and said, trust the Lord, he'll guide you. The servant had prayed that God would guide him, even designing some plan. And God had shown that his plan was good because here this lady had done this, Rebecca. And she does this, pass this test. This is no simple test. You know, this isn't something that's just uh, outside or superfluous or just making up. He's trying to test whether or not there is hospitality, kindness, industry, even generosity from this lady, all of the qualities that he would be looking for for a wife. Now, in this, we're seeing arranged marriages. Some of my most favorite stories for you guys are me residing over arranged marriages in South Asia. I have done it. I've been the pastor of a marriage where the first time the lady laid her eyes on the man was when they got right in front of me. And you should have seen the terror on their faces. <laughs> That's crazy. It's crazy to think about. And I started thinking about things. I was like, man, arranged marriages. That's so odd. It's so crazy. Then you have kids and you're like, I think I can pick. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think I can actually do better than they can. And, you know, that kind of thing. So I might, I might want to do this myself. But you see here, what you find in this is Abraham has commissioned this servant to find a wife that would be a good wife, good, faithful wife to his son. And he sends him amongst his people. And so ultimately, while however we choose our wives, if I'm talking to any of you young people in here who haven't chosen yet, however we choose our wives, we want to make sure they have qualities that are exemplary. And for that matter, however you choose your, your husbands, you want to make sure they have qualities that are exemplary toward God and faithfulness, right? And so we see this here. And this choice has been made. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel. He's showing off here, basically. He's showing off the wealth of Abraham, who would be Isaac's wealth. Two bracelets for her arm weighing 10 gold shekels. This is more than, I don't know, it could be, this is more than she could ever possibly know. He takes these off 
And he brings them to the girl for her arms. Please tell whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahar. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head, worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love. She passed the next test, which is the fact that she is in the family he's looking for, right? She has the qualities. She passes the test that she's in the family that he is looking for. And as he continues, he gives her the ring and the bracelets. Next, in verse 29, we're introduced to another character, Laban. Laban, by the way, as the Bible works, is going to become a character that we'll find out who he is a little bit later because when Jacob is born and trouble is brewing between Jacob and Esau, who does Rebekah send Jacob to? Sends him to Laban. And Laban has two daughters, right? And so we'll see how that works later. Quickly, we notice Laban's character, if you kind of pick it out. What does Laban notice about Rebekah? Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the what? The ring and the bracelet. As soon as he saw the ring and bracelet on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, this man, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, come on in. Yeah, the man's got bracelets with 10 shekels of gold, you know. But, so when we get to Jacob, it shouldn't surprise us that Laban says, you work seven years for my daughter, it'll work out. And then he shifts it on him. Y'all see what I'm saying? You start to see his character. The Bible's working for this. He's introducing these. The narrative is moving down. It's continuing to go, introducing them. Move on down. Rebecca has to come. He makes the plea. Here, the servant of Abraham tells how God has guided him to Rebecca, how the Lord has worked all this out, tells the story of Abraham and his wealth, how the Lord has blessed. He does all of these things, and now he is going to invite Rebecca to come. And just to get you here in verse 58, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. I will go. That's no small thing. She's leaving her family, probably never to return. She's leaving a people, by the way, who are not worshiping the God of Abraham. They're not worshiping him. She's changing religions, if you will. She's leaving back that, those things she knew, her family, her home, her place. She's leaving all of that because what God has orchestrated, what he has brought about, she's calling it, she's seeing it, and she says, I will go. I will go. You see the commitment ultimately of Rebecca. The commitment of Rebecca. She comes, they pray over her, they bless her. Rebecca and her young women arose, rode on the camels, followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. I love in chapter 60, verse 62, Isaac had returned from Bir Lahaloroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to mediate in the field toward evening. And he lifted his eyes and saw, behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil, covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Isaac brought her, verse 67, into the tent of Sarah, his mother, took Rebekah. He didn't waste any time. She became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted 
and his mother's death. You see now Rebecca as the matron of the family having replaced Sarah comes in. Isaac is found a wife. Ultimately, Abraham now can do what? He can go in peace. He can go in peace. He secured the down payment on the land. He secured the down payment on the land where his wife is buried. He started that process that this is the land of my father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is their land. He started that process and secured it. He's got a wife who is faithful from his people, not the Canaanites. He's got a wife who is faithful for his son that will continue the seed that will bring about the promise that God had made. And now it's time for him to go. And Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Median, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan, Father Sheba, and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were all of those names. And then Abraham, it said, and so Abraham, after Sarah dies, has a little bit of spunk left in him, obviously. And he continues to have children. Abraham is the father of many nations, right? He continues on this. But notice here what I want you to point, what I want to point out is in spite, he had done this before with Ishmael. He had a little issue there, a little hiccup on who is the one of promise, and he had to send Ishmael away. It hurt him, but he understood. God had told him, but not now. This has already been secured. And what does it say? After all of these names have been given, these are the children of Keturah, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham believes in the promise. And he knows Isaac is the son of promise. Not all these other kids that's coming. It's Isaac, the one, the only one he had with Sarah who he had told. And so Isaac here is the son of promise. He gives gifts to the others, but it's Isaac that he invests in. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. I want that to be my story, don't you? Breathe my last and died in a good old age. Even in his death, it speaks kindly of Abraham's death, right? It's not violent, not vicious, not hard. He breathed his last and he, last and he died. From Genesis chapter 3, death is a punishment for sin. And so we've seen that throughout Scripture. But here, even in death, we see that it can be a good and faithful death to those who trust the Lord and believe in him. And so here it says he, breathed, he got, died in a good old age, an old man, full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Notice that. He was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave that was given, that was he had already made a down payment on, the field of Ephraim, the son of Zor the Hittite, east of Mamre, right there with Sarah, the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Laha Roy. And so Isaac is the one who has settled, and we see how it's passed to Isaac. Abraham died in a good, good old age. God blessed. There in the land he's buried, beginning that land of the fathers that they trust. Notice how he says he's gathered with his people. Next, as they end this, these are the generations. By the way, remember in Genesis you have the Hebrew word toledot, these are the generations of, serves as a marker of sections, right? And so here you want to have a short section. These are the generations of Ishmael. Testifying that God had made a promise that he will bless Abraham and behold, because of his blessing to Abraham, it will affect even those that are a part of Abraham's family 
even outside of Isaac. And so these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. He goes through, he lames all these names. Just notice, by the way, uh, it would be, gosh, I think, I can't remember. I think it was Eusebius, a historian who first called the people of Ishmael Arabs. And, and here you find all of these nations that come up under Ishmael. And, and if you look, how many children does Ishmael have? Y'all see that? Twelve. Not coincidence that Jacob will have twelve, and this is where the tribes start. In this, you have twelve. So you see Abraham truly is the father of many nations. But it's Isaac who's the promise, and he's the one who's brought in. So it's those, that line that will be blessed. And notice when it says to Abraham, he was gathered to his people. By the way, there is some that makes a lot out of this, and I think it's important to make note, that it says he was gathered to his people even before it says he was buried, right? Some sense of which there's this promise of life even after death in the promises. And so he's gathered to his people. But notice what it says about Ishmael, all of this, they settled from Havilah to Shur down in verse 18. Egypt in the direction of Syria. He settled over against his kinsmen, right? Not with Abraham and with them. Not there, but over against them. Abraham's simple decision to sleep with Hagar and Ishmael's born changed the entire history of the world. In fact, you can look back at the history of the world and see all of this. Just do a study about the Arab people over against the Jewish people, and it continues to who, when? Even today, right? You can do a study of all of this. But what we see, and what I want to end with here as it gives this little section, is while Ishmael's people are over against the kinsmen, God, through his son Jesus Christ, has made a way for the nations to be brought back in. And while they were separated from and cut off, as we saw earlier, they can be brought back into the promises. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians, where he's taken these two who were separate and made them into one. In Ephesians, where he's broke down this wall of hostility. So now in Christ, we can become one people again through this, his blood and what he shed. Salvation has come. He's, his light, as, as Isaiah 55 says, it's too small a thing for his light just to go to Judah, to the people of Israel. His light goes to the nations, to the nations. And so it continues all the way on. And so ultimately what we see as history is shaped by Abraham here and his story, God still is faithful to preserve a people. He preserved, he brought Isaac out of the womb of Sarah. He preserved him. He provided a wife for him. He will do the same as we look now to Jacob and Esau and get into that story. He'll preserve his people. And the whole history that we read through the scripture is God preserving his people through thick and through a lot of thin. God preserves his people until finally the true one who was greater than Abraham is born. The one who was greater than David is born. The one who is heir to all of the promises and where everybody failed and couldn't do it, this one has done it. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has accomplished this. He has kept these promises. He has made them sure. And that's the one we trust in. We find our hope there. And our down payment should be in Christ, knowing that that's our future glory, nothing else. And he has down, he's paid into us through his spirit dwelling in us. And I love as Abraham bought that tomb, that field, and made an investment. 
I've said this line before. I love the old hymn. Augustus Top Lady wrote it. Y'all know Augustus Top Lady? Huh? Y'all got that name? By the way, I think if you're having kids, a son, this was a guy. If you're having kids, Augustus Top Lady would be a great name. You know, I've, Allison and I tried it. Augustus Top Lady Powell. <laughs> Y'all think it's funny. I wouldn't know what to nickname him. But he wrote Rock of Ages. Y'all know Rock of Ages, right? He wrote another song called A Debtor to Grace. And in the second line is a debtor to mercy alone. He gives this, but he says, talks about it. I mentioned this before, but I love this line. He talks about the fact that the angels in heaven may be more happy, but they're not more secure than the saints on earth. Think about that. Because God has made a down payment into us through his spirit. He has told us he who began it will finish it. And they may be more happy than we are right now because we got some weary days here, but they're not more secure than I am. And Abraham believed that too. And he invested in the future promises, the future glory, because he knew that's where the security lies. Not in the money in his pocket, but in the promises of God. That's where our security lies. And that's what he invested in. And his life becomes a testimony. And the reason why today we still talk about Abraham is because he invested in the glory that came from the promises of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your truth. May we too invest in the glory that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, help our lives to be exemplary in how we believe and we follow. All by your grace, all for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank y'all so much. Y'all have a great night. We'll see you Sunday. We'll see you Sunday.